Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq El Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us wherever you get your podcast. We're on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. So if you're on Apple users, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and we're also on TuneIn. Find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, so we make it really easy for you uh, to keep up with us and stay connected. So once again, thanks for tuning in. And today we have a great program for you. We are joined, we have, well, we have joining us on the phone, uh, Professor Juan Cole. And if you are not familiar with uh, Professor Cole, uh, he is a public intellectual, prominent blogger and essayist, and the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. Now, in addition to his own blog, Informed Comment, his writing commentary has appeared in the Washington Post, The Guardian, The Boston Review, just to name a few. And he has also uh, been on uh, television shows such as Nightline, ABC Evening News, Anderson Cooper 360, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, and many others. And you're probably asking yourself, how is it, if I have not heard of him, how is it that that's possible, right, after hearing all that? But his latest book is entitled Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And uh, I tell you, folks, it is certainly one that you want to have in your library, you want to read. And we are pleased to welcome Professor Juan Cole to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I've got to say that uh, I'm close to finishing the book. Now, I have um, absolutely loved it. And this is the first book of yours I've read. And I've got to say that I've not only enjoyed the information, but the presentation. So um, I've got to say, as a lay person, I appreciate the, the, the color and the, the life of the language. Now, I don't mean to uh, offend any academics out there, but I don't normally associate the adjective engaging <laughs> with academic uh, reading. <laughs> <laughs> so um, could you talk a bit about, uh, first off, just about your writing process on this book? Uh, how much did you think about engaging the reader? as opposed to simply sharing facts? Oh, I, I thought a lot about engaging the reader. Um, you know, I, I didn't want this book uh, to be just an academic tome. Uh, I could have done it, as you say, in kind of a, a specialized academic style and gotten it out with the university press, and then I think it would have had very little circulation. Mm -hmm. So I deliberately tried to find a publisher, uh, a trade publisher in New York who would have good distribution, and would get it out to people, and uh, but the the trade-off there is that of course uh, uh, they want uh, to sell books and they want to reach people, mm -hmm. so then uh, they want you to write in a uh, an engaging way. And I I'd written a book called uh, Napoleon's Egypt, uh, where I used the techniques of what's uh, sometimes called uh, literary nonfiction. Mm. Uh, you don't make anything up, uh, but you do attend to more novelistic kinds of techniques, scene setting and uh, uh, scenery and, you know, the five senses uh, sort of making things come uh, alive. And so I had, uh, uh, you know, I've tried to school myself on how to write like that. And uh, 
Napoleon's Egypt is probably my best seller and did very well. So I, I use some of those same techniques uh, here in this book. Mm. So I'll have to go back and read Napoleon's Egypt as well. Um, yeah, but uh, just speaking about making things come alive, the scenery, you know, what automatically comes to mind is your descriptions of the, the sunset or the, 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 the sand, uh, um, just these things that might seem to be really uh, unimportant you know, uh, small things, uh, and they just really, really came to life. But on a more uh, substantive uh, note, because this is a, uh, it's a weighty topic, uh, and it has great uh, relevance to, I guess, to the conversation today, you know, around, uh, around Islam, around how the, the prophet is seen. Um, in terms of how the prophet's mission was in, uh, seemed to be in conversation with other faiths, uh, with other faith communities uh, of the time. Could you talk a bit about that and how that's relevant to today? Sure. Well, uh, my approach was to use the Quran as my primary source. You know, uh, historians really value eyewitness accounts, and uh, um, my point of view on it is that the Quran is our uh, only sure eyewitness account to these events, and so then I would want to know what does the Quran say about uh, Jews and Christians uh, in the context of uh, the, the prophet's uh, life. And what I find is that uh, there are very warm relations uh, with both mentioned in the book, uh, although, of course, there are sometimes tensions or criticisms. But on the whole and by and large, uh, I see uh, the Quran as depicting uh, the prophet as praising uh, Christians for their charity and their... Uh, um, uh, their own, you know, attitude of turning the other cheek, uh, and uh, you know, short of being violently attacked, the the Quran actually advises the early Muslims to respond to harassment and taunting and that sort of thing in the same way, uh, uh, responding with what is better uh, and uh, uh, with with love even to one's enemies. Uh, and and so the Christians are seen as a kind of paragon of that sort of virtue, mm -hmm. and the Jews uh, are also praised. The Quran calls them a chosen people and um, uh, says that God gave them scripture and wisdom, and uh, 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 that there are people, upright people among them, who are kind of paragons or kind of exemplars, you know, that show us uh, how to live the righteous life. Uh, and then later on, this, these are Meccan uh, verses, mm -hmm. later on after the Prophet moves to Medina, uh, the, you know, in Medina, I think the, um, the task was to unify the city uh, against uh, the militant pagans who were attacking it. And uh, so you have, uh, outside of the Quran, we, we have uh, the remnants of uh, the constitution of Medina, which we think is a treaty that the Prophet made with the Christians and the Jews in the city. Uh, and then uh, in the Quran itself, uh, it talks about how uh, the, the Jews, the Christians, the Sabians, the Muslims are, you know, if they live righteous lives, uh, are, are all eligible for salvation. Uh, so I see the Quran as a very ecumenical document. And uh, uh, as I said, there are moments of tension with other communities, as would be inevitable in uh, that kind of. Uh, uh, society, but uh, on the whole and by and large, the very positive comments are made. Yes, yes. Now, you also, um, in this book, you detail 
how trade um, had uh, a tremendous impact upon the life of the prophet. And uh, well, the trade route, the fact that he was, you know, he's going from Mecca, you know, up to, to, to Syria or to, uh, to, to Palestine um, and that he came into contact with other uh, with other individuals, with religious, not just religious men, but re religious um, with text. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Because there's a contention, uh, you know, uh, among many. Uh, who speak about uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and praise be upon him, as uh, as one who was not literate. Sure. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I think that the the evidence is that the, the Prophet was in fact literate, and mm -hmm. I I suspect in more than one language. Yeah. Um, the the word that is used uh, to justify saying that he was illiterate is in Arabic ummi. Uh, but I think it has been misinterpreted by later commentators. Uh, Umi uh, literally means uh, ethnic. Um, and uh, I, I think in, in the context, it, it means Gentile, it means somebody who's not a Jew or a Christian, uh, doesn't you know, grow up with the Bible. And uh, so he was a, a Gentile prophet uh, and uh, addressing a Gentile People and that the Quran is proud of that. That although uh, they're, uh, the the Arabs are not uh, Jews or Christians and don't have a biblical heritage, a prophet has come to them from among them, preaching the one God, and this is seen as a kind of miracle. Um, so I don't think Ummi means uh, illiterate. Uh, and uh, then. The early Muslim sources and the early Christian sources both agree that he was a long-distance merchant, Muhammad, that he went up from Mecca to uh, Transjordan and Palestine and Syria on these trade missions. Right. Uh, long-distance merchants are always literate. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't keep your books if you're not literate. You can't be a, a successful long-distance merchant. And people, the early Muslim sources say that Muhammad was very successful at that uh, before he turned uh, to his prophetic ministry, uh, uh, he used to double Khadija's uh, uh, investment. His wife would, would, would back these trading missions. So uh, it's just not logically possible that he was illiterate. Mm -hmm. And then the Quran uh, uh, quotes uh, sometimes uh, the Bible or other texts. Uh, so uh, uh, Muhammad was certainly able to read them, otherwise he couldn't quote them. Uh, mm -hmm. It couldn't all be from memory. Right. Uh, so it just doesn't make any sense to me uh, that, that he would have been illiterate. And, and I think there's lots of evidence in the Quran that he wasn't. Yeah. And I think that also goes just in, uh, in, in today's times um, throughout, throughout Africa, you know, as, as a continent, just about everybody is, uh, you know, you're looking at polyglots, you know, people that speak, they're speaking four or five different languages. Um, and not just not just speaking, but also writing the, those languages. So, yeah, so I, I appreciate that uh, as well. Um, could you speak also about uh, there are instances where there are uh, there are references towards Pharaoh? Uh, and I thought this was really exciting uh, to look at the um, the what is now uh, Iran the uh, and, and so their their predecessor going back is the uh, Sasanian uh, Empire. That's that correct. That is correct. So to look at their uh, the the politics of that particular time and how the Quran would address 
or it, it almost felt like it was addressing it on the kind of like um, very, very carefully uh, for that time, uh, but using Pharaoh, uh, using Pharaoh as a representation of the, 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 the ruler of the, uh, the Sasanian Empire at that time. Sure, and of course this is only a suggestion on my yeah, yeah. part. Sure, uh, sure. It's difficult to prove these things, but you know when the Quran first starts mentioning uh, Pharaoh and ancient Egypt, uh, it's uh, it talks about the ruins, you know, the pyramids and those things uh, that uh, show that uh, the polytheistic way of life had led to their ruin. Uh, but then. Uh, later on, it starts talking about the pharaoh and saying that, you know, he conquered lands and he divided people and he took the men uh, and made them slaves and uh, uh, killed them and then he, he enslaved the women. And um, these st stories about pharaoh are parallel to things that were being said by about the Iranian ruler, Khosrow II, who invaded the, uh, the Middle East uh, from uh, Iran and Iraq. Uh, in, in the early 600s, the time of the, of the prophet's ministry uh, overlapped with this enormous war between the Eastern Roman Empire and the uh, Sasanian Iranians. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, th I think it, it just uh, people use scripture symbolically, and we know, you know, when when the uh, uh, when the enslaved uh, African-Americans in the South were talking about Moses uh, and the liberation of the of yeah. his people. Mm -hmm. We know what they meant by that. Right. Uh, and uh, so I think in the same way, uh, the, the Quran uh, it, it talks about uh, the evils that Pharaoh did, but it's, it's probably actually referring to the Sasanian Empire and uh, the things that he was doing. And I think it, uh, the, it was dangerous, you know, to openly uh, and repeatedly criticize uh, the Iranian emperor at that time because he ruled uh, the areas around uh, Mecca. And uh, so I think that's why a symbolic language was adopted. But this is, this is a suggestion on my part, that the Quran is in part should be read as responding to the great events around it of the early uh, 600s, mm -hmm. uh, and that takes nothing away from the eternal values that it is uh, imparting to people, but all scripture, you know, has this double aspect, that it's, it's talking to contemporaries, but then it's talking to all of humankind across the ages. Right. And uh, so I think the, the, the denouncing tyranny works both ways. Mm. So you weave in uh, and out, you give references to uh, Christian uh, theologians of that time, uh, giving parallel scriptures to uh, scriptures found uh, in, in the Quran. Um, and also, as you just said, by painting a picture of, uh, of the socio-political climate that the Quran was revealed uh, into, uh, it gives, it gives a, a deeper uh a clear, I guess, a fuller uh, impression uh, and understanding you know, when one goes to uh, analyze. So that's it. Do you think that in the present day, as people, um, st as people study, that their study should should expand beyond simply the uh, the word? Do you think this, that the present day study is is a bit too linear and needs to expand? To consider the issues that you have brought up uh, in this book, 
Yeah, uh, Tarek, the thing that amazed me when I undertook this work is that, you know, there are a few texts uh, that are contemporaneous with the Qur'an. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Roman Near East or in Iran, uh, and uh, I'm not talking here about influences or, you know, uh, trying to trace uh, uh, those sorts of uh, uh, themes. Uh, uh, what, what I struck me was that well, that we know when the Qur'an was, it was in the early 600s, wouldn't it be interesting to compare and contrast uh, some of its passages to uh, what contemporaries were saying, uh, whether the, you know, the Greeks in Constantinople or the Aramaic speakers in Syria or uh, the, the late uh, Sasanian works, uh, and that if we did that, it would help to shed illumination on what the Qur'an was saying. So, uh, just to give you an example, since you brought this up, uh, there's a, a big rap on the Qur'an about the verses on war. Mm -hmm. And I went through them, and I found parallels for almost all of them in the works of St. Augustine. Well, nobody attacks St. Augustine for being a warmonger. Everybody understands that he developed a theory of just war. Uh, and uh, I think that's what the Quran proposes as well, is, is a theory of just war. Aggression is not allowed, but if you're attacked, you have to defend your family right. and innocence. Uh, and so I didn't find what the Quran said about war to be exceptional in any way. That is to say, any religious preacher of that time would also have agreed that uh, just war is, is justified. And, 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 you know, people asked uh, Augustine, uh, who lived a couple hundred years before Muhammad, uh, you know, what about Jesus saying, turn the other cheek? And uh, Augustine said, well, you know, that, that is true. It should be your first response, but you shouldn't take it too far. That is to say, if, if armies are marching down and trying to kill your children, you have to try to defend the children. Right. So um, uh, I, I think by looking at the Qur'an uh, in comparison and contrast with other texts of what, what historians are now calling late antiquity, that, that era of uh, the, the late Roman Christian Empire, uh, it becomes clear that, that some of the criticisms of the Qur'an uh, that are often voiced in a kind of a contextual, a historical way, mm -hmm. uh, are not justified. Mm. How long did this did this uh, book take you to uh, to write? Ah, uh, well, uh, <laughs> the, the, how long it took me to write is is not an easy question to answer because mm. there's some sense in which uh, you know I began studying the Quran in Cairo in uh, in, in the mid 1970s uh, mm. with. Uh, Egyptian scholars, uh, and uh, uh, I also studied early Islam with the, the great uh, historian Marsden Jones, mm -hmm. who edited some of the uh, of the uh, Arabic uh, early texts like Al Waqidi. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know some of the thoughts that are in this book uh, go back uh, uh, thirty, forty years, uh, but um, I set myself uh, to write it. Uh, in a concerted way in the last decade. Mm, okay. Um, when it comes to uh, to interfaith uh, today, interfaith gatherings, interfaith efforts, uh, in order to, to understand one another, um, what are the things that we are 
and I don't know if this is too much of a di- diversion, but what are the things that you uh, observe that are missing from that conversation uh, that makes it a uh, that makes it a, a fuller, more effective uh, conversation? Well, with regard to interreligious dialogue, uh, yeah, I think that um, uh, that looking at uh, the scriptures more comparatively is is really important. Uh, and uh, you know, as I said, people blame the Quran for these relatively small number of verses about uh, what I, thought I I consider just war. Right. Uh, but you know, all you have to do is read the Book of Joshua and the Bible uh, to see a, a much more uh, uh, let us say bellicose attitude in in, in the uh, the Judeo Christian scriptures. Uh, so I think people don't think about these things in comparative terms. Uh, and um, uh, the other thing to say is that I think people don't uh, know much about Islam. That's one of the reasons I wrote this book, right. was to try to put in, in English, and as you say, in an accessible way, the basics of the Prophet's biography and interweave that with some of the more important Quran verses. Uh, the Quran is really hard uh, to approach. I, uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that, that Muslims realize how difficult a book it is for most Americans uh, in the sense that, you know, with the Bible we have uh, the Anchor Bible, we have a lot of commentaries and people grow up with it and, you know, at Sunday school and uh, or, or at uh, uh, after hours at synagogue. And, and so when you, you, you hear a or see a, a Bible verse, uh, you know, people brought up in that tradition recognize what period of Jesus' ministry it's from, or they have a context for it, whereas they don't have a context for Quran because they don't, uh, they don't know the life of the prophet, mm-hmm. and then the Quran is arranged in the Uthmani version uh, by, by length of, of chapter rather than by uh, chronology, and uh, so... Uh, it just uh, is very forbidding. I've, I've taught the Quran uh, in, in uh, undergraduate classes, and, and the students are bewildered. Mm-hmm. And I think we need, uh, we need better material for, uh, for uh, allowing people to approach the, the material in a, uh, uh, a more concerted way. Mm. You know, that's a really uh, interesting point with regard to how, uh, how the Quran can be a difficult uh, text to engage um, simply because of its arrangement and because of the lack of context. And one of the things that I have uh, that I have uh, experienced over time and, and heard is for new people in, in particular um, who are interested in Islam, the first thing that um, that they've been told is not to read the Quran, but to read the biography, biography of the Prophet first and mm. then to read the Quran. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I, th- I think that's right, is that you, the Qur'an itself is very difficult to approach unless you uh, have a sense of where it falls in the biography of the Prophet. Right. Uh, the other thing is, uh, Tarek, is that uh, unfortunately, be, again, you know, with the Bible, we've, it was a Christian society, and so we have the King James Version, which goes back to, you know, hundreds of years and uh, influenced in English literature, uh, the, the Quran is, in my view, very badly translated, and uh, 
I, I think, off-putting because not only stylistically but conceptually, it's just not translated very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, uh, I, I make the point that uh, the, the, in the war verses, it says that the, the believers uh, should... Um, uh, should fight with, uh, with with lethal force against those who were trying to kill them and their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically that word to fight is translated in English as slay. So, and, and it produces uh, logical nonsense. For instance, there's a verse in, in the, the uh, Surah Tatova, the, 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 the uh, chapter of repentance, uh, that says, uh, uh, I would translate, fight them with lethal force uh, and and take them captive. Mm-hmm. And then people translate it as slay them and take them captive. So what are they They're making this corpses captive? Right. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, and so it, the word clearly doesn't mean slay. Right. And then uh, I think that the word uh, kafir in the Quran uh, should be translated pagan. Yes. And it's often translated unbeliever or infidel. Uh, and this causes enormous uh, misunderstandings because if you say slay the uh, the unbelievers wherever you find them, and you interpret unbelievers to be the non-Muslims, mm-hmm. and you don't have the context that it's talking about being attacked by by militant pagans, uh, then it makes the Quran look like a very militant document. Whereas what it's actually saying is defend yourself from the militant pagans uh, wherever you encounter them. Uh, which is a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to say. So uh, I think we we, we just need more uh, people to work on, you know, the style of the Quran, uh, the the translation, uh, and 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 as you say, then the biographical material. Uh, and uh, it's it's we're still at a very primitive stage with all of this. Mm. And you know what? Just that uh, slight shift. Uh, militant pagans uh, once again understanding the context of revelation and who which who was in in what particular part um, that gives a completely different understanding um, you know because the, uh, the, the the militant pagans those who were against the uh, the, the early Muslim community um, and the revelation and were um, uh, uh, oppressing them and looking to you know inflict injury upon them, that gives a completely different understanding. So much. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's very important that there that we attend to language and we attend to context. And of course, uh, what I'm saying is not accepted by all Muslims either. But sure. I don't believe that there's any place in the Quran uh, where the word kafir or uh, 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 I translated pagan. Uh, is is ever uh, applied to Christians or Jews. Uh, now, there are um, passages about a group that the Quran calls those who have paganized um, among the people of the book, that is to say, the people who believe in the Bible, mm-hmm. but have gone over uh, to those uh, uh, truculent uh, pagans who were attacking uh, uh, Medina and the Muslims, uh, but the, the very fact that it has to identify this as a subgroup, the Quran carves them out and says there's a there's a subgroup of uh, people who believe in the Bible who have sided with the enemy, uh, means that in general mm-hmm. the Jews and the Christians are not unbelievers uh, or, or or pagans. If you know if you have to say 
those who have paganized from among the people of the book, Aladina Kafiru Min Ahlul Kitab, that it means that the the the, the biblical uh, communities are a priori not ordinarily in that group of oppositionists. So I don't think that the Quran uses the word unbeliever or infidel uh, for uh, the Christians and the Jews. It sees them, uh, at one point it addresses them and says, your God and, and, and our God is one God. Uh, so it's very clear. One of the other things that uh, this book does, uh, I think it also gives a present-day understanding of the, the inherited uh, dislike, the inherited conflict. Uh, uh, it, it seems to be a legacy. And I, I think I recall that you... Um, you intimated as much with regard to the Sasanian and the uh, the, the, the Byzantine um, empires there, or the Roman Roman Empire in their their conflict, and how it was something that seemed to just uh, be passed down from one generation to the next. Um, is today's the 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 conflict that we see, or the animus that we see between uh, Iran of today and the United States? Is that kind of, you know, similar to that, that transference of that legacy? Well, I, I, you know, you bring up a good point, Tarek. Uh, and uh, it's certainly the case that, you know, civilizations can be mounted from the Iranian plateau. And so whether you have the Sasanian Empire or you have the Islamic Republic of Iran, mm-hmm. uh, they have, you know, a, put, uh, a demographic and military potential, uh, that, that, that piece of geography. And... Uh, of course, Iran has been a world empire, and, and, and the, the Achaemenids, uh, Cyrus the Great, and, and then later on uh, under the uh, Sasanians. And, I mean, there's a sense in which the Abbasid Caliphate, which was Muslim, was nevertheless uh, based, you know, primarily in Iran and uh, carried on many Sasanian heritages. So, uh, sure, um, uh, this uh, potential for East-West conflict is there. And... Um, uh, one of the one of the interesting uh, kind of parallels you could make is the conflict over Jerusalem, mm. because uh, the, uh, the the Romans, uh, uh, you know, conquered uh, what is now Israel and Palestine uh, in the uh, in the first century BC, right. uh, and then they they found it very difficult to rule. Uh, Palestine in particular, because the, the Jewish population kept rising up against them. Uh, and so they destroyed the Jewish temple on, on the Temple Mount in 70 uh, A.D., uh, after Jesus. Uh, and uh, then another big uh, revolt happened uh, uh, in, in the 130s, and uh, the Romans expelled the Jews from Jerusalem and uh, uh, made Jerusalem a they renamed it, and they made it a Roman city. And then, of course, Constantine in, in 312 became a Christian, and so the Christians were very happy to have control of Jerusalem uh, and uh, kept the Jews out of it. Uh, there were you know, hundreds of years there where you couldn't be Jewish and go into the city, uh, and, and built the, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, and really Christianized Jerusalem. But then in 614, uh, some four years after the Prophet Muhammad began reciting the Qur'an, uh, the, the Iranians invaded and took Jerusalem. Uh, 
And this was a huge trauma for the Christian world, the first time that they had lost Jerusalem uh, to non-Christians. The the Sasanians were members of the Zoroastrian religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Quran, I think the Quran refers to these events, you know, in, in the in the Surat Rum in the chapter of Rome, uh, it predicts, uh, it it says that you know, Rome has been defeated uh, in a nearby province, uh, but predicts that it will come back. Uh, and then, in uh, uh, the 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 chapter of the night journey, uh, Surat Isra, uh, the prophet. Uh, um, Talks about what I what I think of as as an actual journey to Iranian-occupied Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you think about uh, now the conflict between Israel and Iran and the place of Jerusalem in it, uh, that's that's a theme that that does carry through to our own time. Mm. All right, uh, Radio Islam family, we are talking with Professor Juan Cole. His newest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace and the Clash of Empires. We're going to take a short. I'll emphasize again, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Radio Islam. We're on WCEV, 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Hey, Mom, why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us on social media. Follow our pages, like us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us wherever you get yours at, at Radio Islam USA. All right, our guest today is Professor Juan Cole. Uh, we've been talking about um, his book and about um, history. And uh, if you didn't get the title of the book, the book is uh, Muhammad. <clears throat> excuse me. It is a uh, uh, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace amid the clash of empires, and it is definitely uh, is definitely worth your read. So you definitely want to go pick that up and check it out, and let us know what you think. Right. So uh, drop us a drop us a line. Hit us on Facebook, Twitter. Let us know what you think. All right. With regard to uh, Islamophobia uh, today, some people look at it as a modern uh, phenomenon. Um, but history shows that there has there has been long been this tension um, between uh, between uh, lands ruled by Muslims, uh, uh, Islamic uh, Muslim empires and Muslim uh, uh, kingdoms um, and you know, and, and, and their Christian counterparts. How much, how much of that is due to, um, how much of that is really, is actually authentic or is, is it really about theology or is it something else? It just, it's just the, the need to expand, the need to uh, control. Well, that's a really, you know, deep question, Tarek, and uh, there's, there are big debates about these things. Personally, uh, I'm kind of, you know, on, on this matter, I'm kind of a realist that I think, I think kingdoms and of the past uh, were pragmatic, and they made their alliances where they needed to make their alliances. So, uh, you know, uh, when in the, uh, in the 1600s, uh, the Iranians, the, the Safavid Empire, which was a Shiite Muslim, mm -hmm. wanted to get rid of the Portuguese from the Gulf. They made an alliance with the British to do that. Hmm. Uh, and then in the 1500s and 1600s, as Protestantism was spreading through Europe, it spread into Eastern Europe, into areas like Hungary uh, and, and uh, what is now the Czech Republic, where the Ottomans were in control. Uh, and the Ottomans supported the Protestants uh, against the Catholics, uh, and the Catholic kings were, were often there military enemies. So the Ottoman Sunni Muslims uh, were in alliance with the Protestants against the Catholics. The Shiite Muslims of Iran were in alliance with the British against the Portuguese. Uh, and uh, so these things didn't just cut, you know, in a certain way. It wasn't always Muslim versus Christian. It was Christian versus Christian with the Muslims uh, choosing up sides sometimes. Uh, and um, that tells me that you know, it's just not black and white. It's not us versus them. Uh, it's a much more complicated situation. Mm -hmm. And then there were many instances, for instance, uh, after the Castilian Spanish, were Catholics, reconquered uh, much of, um, or, or gradually were reconquering uh, southern Spain, which had been Muslim. Mm -hmm. For a while there, you had in the kingdom of Valencia, which was a Christian-ruled uh, uh, kingdom, 
in uh, in eastern Spain, you had a big Muslim population, and the 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 Roman Catholics in Valencia, you know, had no legal tradition of ruling over non-Christians. Uh, they didn't know what to do about it, and so they just developed a series of administrative mechanisms for treating the Muslims under their rule in an equitable way. Uh, and, of course, uh, Muslims uh, uh, who had big Christian populations uh, also, uh, you know, called them people of the book and privileged them in, in certain ways and, and, and recognized their right to worship. So, you know, the, the kind of black and white, us versus them, uh, tone of the Islamophobic literature of our own day of something like the uh, the uh, Dutch uh, activist uh, Geert Wilders, uh, that isn't really very historical. Uh, people all through time have been making these compromises with one another and, and cross-religious alliances, and that history needs to be written too. Mm. But in terms of pragmatic decisions um, where, uh, where uh, empires, where governments decide to come together because it is the because cooperation makes sense. It's, it's in everyone's best interest. Uh, when it comes to places like the United States where the Muslim population is, what, we're 1%, about 1% of the, the overall population, um, where, what is the pragmatic uh, impetus for, for cooperation? Uh, and I ask that because we've had, uh, I think we've had about five or six states that have adopted anti-Sharia uh, yes. uh, le- you know, resolutions. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be for a segment of the population, this idea that it is, that it, that it is pragmatic for us to, uh, for us to work together, for us to get to know one another. Uh, and instead the actions come from, from a place of, I can, I can simply just disregard you. I don't have to pay attention to you. What, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, certainly in terms of domestic U.S. Uh, uh, policy, uh, frankly, uh, about 17% now of Americans are evangelicals. Uh, it's fallen from 25% uh, a couple decades ago, mm-hmm. and so seems to be shrinking uh, rapidly. But uh, that 17% who are evangelicals, uh, of course, are quite diverse and uh uh, you can't uh, characterize them all in the same way. Sure. But within the evangelical movement, uh, there there is a trend uh, which is prominent, and especially uh, uh, among the religious right that get involved in politics, of, I think, demonizing Muslims and trying to replace the communists uh, with the Muslims. That is to say, uh, you know, America is a very unequal society, and... Uh, uh, many of the political policies that are adopted hurt middle class and poor people. Mm. And one of the only ways that you can make that work is to get them afraid of some outside force. Uh, so I think they used the communists. You know, there were only ever 100,000 communists in the United States. And after 1956, there were 50,000. But they they made them into a, a huge threat, uh, and you know Nixon got elected the first time by running against communists in San Francisco, and when there were, hardly were any. Right. Uh, well, I think they do the same thing with the Muslims nowadays, and they're they're uh, uh, using them to whip up people's fears and say, "Elect me, 
and then I'll protect you from this threat. And at the same time, then, of course, they're pursuing policies like uh, backing the big uh, oil companies or cutting taxes on the billionaires and, and so forth. Right. So uh, I think that the Muslims, unfortunately, have gotten caught up in that kind of politics. And I think the, the evangelical movement in particular is, is guilty of politics of hate. And so they, they basically replaced the Communist Manifesto with Muslim uh, uh, law, the, the Sharia, uh, in an extremely, you know, racist way. Uh, uh, the, the one good thing about anti-communism was it wasn't, at least it wasn't uh, ethnic, uh, it was ideological. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're singling out Muslims for opprobrium. And, of course, these anti-Sharia bills that are passed in places like Oklahoma, primarily by uh, representatives from the religious right, uh, are unconstitutional, and whenever they have gone to, to the courts, they have been struck down. But it, it's also very disturbing because of its bigotry. And, you know, imagine if states were passing uh, anti-Halakha laws, that you can't practice um, Jewish law. Right. Uh, I mean, that that would be Nazism. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's the same thing when they do it to, to Muslims. And, of, of course, what Sharia is is not understood by most Americans, uh, and uh, they don't understand how it's, you know, the, the practice of law by Muslims is actually historically somewhat fluid, and, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, interpreting uh, the law and the Hadith and the Quran. Uh, and so to reify it and to make it this threat uh, is, is just uh, a form of demagoguery, and it's very unfortunate. But it's also a teaching moment because uh, the Muslim American community has to organize to reply to these mm-hmm. calumnies. Right. So, in terms of um, of engagement, uh, there is the uh, the internal and the uh, the external that that engagement that happens or that is um, that is spurred on by the Muslim community itself, and of course the engagement on the other side where the uh, American uh, where, where our government itself, our leaders, look to engage the Muslim community. So uh, a book like this, I see it as kind of a revolving uh, revolving door or a way that Muslims can can engage others who may not know much about uh, Islam and, uh, and and really not and about the the life of the the prophet uh, and see it in a in a contextual manner, uh, but also where, uh, where our, our our leaders, our elected officials in particular, uh, can look and and get a uh, get get a deeper uh, understanding of uh, of the life of the prophet and how how that uh, that context also relates to uh, the present day. Are there any other steps that you would recommend aside from you know just the, the reading and education that you say uh, that you think are uh, necessary with regard to engaging the Muslim community? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, I talk on this a lot, and um, I think there are responsibilities on all sides. Americans need to get more up to speed on, on Islam and visit a mosque. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people uh, view Islam as, as somehow exotic, or they don't know any Muslims. Uh, that there's usually a mosque in the neighborhood. Uh, uh, look it up uh, and, and go visit it. Uh, and, you know, I think on the Muslim side, Muslim Americans are <clears throat> uh, of all kinds. Uh, 
uh, they fall into about fourths. I mean, about fourth are African Americans, about fourth are uh, are white converts, um, mainly Sufis, mm. uh, and then uh, a fourth are South Asians, and a fourth are Arab Americans. And um, among the South Asians and the Arab Americans, of course, very large numbers are, are uh, first and second and third generation immigrants. Mm. I think. Uh, in their own countries, the immigrant Muslims stayed out of trouble by keeping their heads down and being quiet. And I try to tell them that in America, the people who don't come out in public and uh, don't represent themselves uh, get a big red uh, target on their backs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we need more of them to uh, to become... Uh, public and I think you take someone like Ilhan Omar, who you know has now been elected to, to Congress, or, or Rashida Tlaib uh, in Detroit, who's uh, Palestinian American and, and Muslim. Uh, that uh, they people need to run for office, and it doesn't have to be at a high level. You know, uh, it's not so hard to get elected to a school board. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've, I've have Muslim American friends who have run for school board. Uh, and so the Muslim American community just needs to reach out more. Uh, I think uh, you know, going to going to a local church and saying, well, "Would you like to, you know, run a little seminar in the evenings uh, on interreligious dialogue?" And the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews can get together on those bases. Uh, the opinion polling shows that uh, if you ask Americans what they think about Muslims, uh, they have a relatively negative view of them. About 49% have unfavorable view. Mm -hmm. But um, the ones who actually know a Muslim have a much more favorable view of Islam. Right. Uh, and so obviously one of the tasks of the Muslim Americans is to get to be better known. Yeah, yeah. And I think there there are organizations that are, that have picked up that mantle. And I can't think of the the name doesn't come to me. Uh, immediately, but is, is dealing with the Muslim presence uh, in, in media, in, in Hollywood in particular, in film. Uh, in sure. Television. Well, the uh, impact uh, yeah. is very good on those yes. issues, uh, yes. the Muslim American organization in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's critical because uh, when we think about anti-Semitism, uh, there was a sense, there was a sensitizing uh, period where uh, that it had to become something that was just absolutely socially unacceptable uh, for, you know, to have that label put on you. Um, uh, and, you know, something that, and rightfully so, nobody wants to be labeled or, or associated or mistaken uh, as an, as an anti-Semite or bigot or, or racist, uh, but anti-Semitic in particular. And I think it's going to take that same type of effort and uh, sensitization to take place where being an Islamophobe uh, is, you know, is looked at as something as, as being socially unacceptable. Absolutely right. Well, to, I mean, to be fair, you know, I'm a historian, so I take a long view of these things. And mm -hmm. people don't often realize that you go back to the 1850s, it was the Catholics who were in the same bind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Catholic churches were burned down and... Um, Part of my family were German Catholics in Pennsylvania, and they faced an enormous amount of prejudice and opposition. Uh, that Know Nothing movement, uh, which people don't understand, the reason they were called Know Nothing is not they were <clears throat> proud of being ignorant, but they were um, they were um, 
secret society, so if they were captured and, people, and the government wanted to know who their associates were, they would say, I know nothing. Mm-hmm. But they were formed as, you know, they were kind of a precursor to the Ku Klux Klan, but they were formed to attack Catholics. Uh, so uh, now, you know, we've had a Catholic president, and Catholics are much more integrated into American society, but it, w- it did not come easy, I want to tell you. And uh, it's not, it doesn't, didn't come easy for Jewish Americans. Uh, someone like Henry Ford, who was a, a, oh, yeah. you know, a huge uh, magnate of his time, mm-hmm. uh, constantly attacked Jews and, and actually was sued for libel by them. Uh, so uh, over time, you know, if, if you work at it in American society, uh, you can get people to behave better. Uh, but but it, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And I, I think it's unfortunate that uh, that we lose that long view, you know, that you mentioned uh, about being a historian, uh, to be able to look and see how um, different populations seem to be cycled in and out of that that bottom spot. You know, they, they have the target on them for, you know, for 100 years, and then they're replaced by someone else. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. I hope we can get to the point where we get rid of the idea of having a targeted community. Yes, yes, that would be wonderful. <laughs> well, last, last question. Let me ask you, what do you, um, what do you want readers to walk away with uh, from this particular book? Well, I'd love readers to uh, in, in the United States and uh, Europe, in particular, to uh, come away from this book with an understanding uh, that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, Islam, are not exotic or alien. Uh, that the world out of which they came was the late Roman Empire, uh, which is the same world that that our laws and institutions came out of. So. You know, a uh, hundred years before the Prophet Muhammad, the Roman Emperor Justinian issued the Codex, uh, uh, the, the sort of assemblage of Roman law, uh, and that became the basis for much European law and, and, and American law. Uh, and uh, it's it's that same world that uh, that Islam uh, came out of. Uh, so, I argue that Islam is very much a Western religion in that sense, uh, that it was engaging with, uh, with the, uh, the late Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to say Islam is self, it's not other. Hmm. Uh, it, it's recognizably self, because the uh, currents that are apparent in it, uh, biblical monotheism and the, the prophetic tradition going back to Abraham, uh, and um, many engagements with Roman institutions and so forth. That that's that's self uh, for for Europe and the United States, and uh, that it shouldn't be seen uh, as uh, and, and you know shouldn't be Orientalized. Uh, mm. And if I could get them to see Islam as very much in the same lines as Judaism and Christianity uh, and the Western heritage, uh, I'd be very pleased. Mm. Uh, Professor Cole, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And um, before we let you go, would you let our listening audience know, uh, I mentioned the blog, but what's the address? Oh, yes. Well, the the name of the blog is Informed Comment, Mm -hmm. and I'm Juan Cole, Mm J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E. So if you just Google Informed Comment or Juan Cole, uh, it'll come right up. Okay. All right. Thanks so much again. Um, we look forward to, uh, to you all reading and letting us know what you think. 
All right, folks, it is our time to go. We thank you for tuning in and we thank our sponsor, the Zakat Foundation. Thanks very much. And we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.